19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I didn't find it ironic that uh, preparing to preach on anger, uh, Carol and I decided to uh, do a gallery wall. That is where you put all these pictures up on one wall. And, um, and they're all to be, in my mind, symmetrical. I, I tend to be maybe a little bit more uh, given to the detail to make sure all the gaps are right. Carol's more of a big picture thinker. Just you can put the picture there and you can put the other picture there. And for me, that's like just nails down a chalkboard. I mean, it just doesn't work. And so I introduced her to this thing called a tape measure. And I said, these are really neat when you want to hang pictures. But what was happening was all of a sudden the tension was beginning to build and the anger was beginning to rise. She wanted to do it a certain way. I wanted to do it a different way. Naturally, my way was the way that I felt was the right way. And, and, and we started getting angry, and I started thinking, we're just hanging pictures. And we can't seem to do that without running crosswise with each other. I mean, anger is incredible in the sense that it affects all of us. I mean, regardless of race, education, marital or single status, even your temperament, Everybody struggles with anger. It's broadly applied to all of us. It's not just broad, but it's also deep. It is probably one of the deadliest of the seven sins. I, I mean, we are in a culture of rage, in an age of rage. I mean, from terrorism to political, just anger, even down to our homes and even in our marriages. So we're looking at the book of James because James is a book of wisdom. James is, is kind of like the New Testament equivalent to the book of Proverbs. And, and what James is furnishing us here is not content or not you know, intellectual awareness, but, but it's, it's, in Scripture, wisdom is how do you live rightly before God. And that's what James is going to teach us. It, it's looking to, to help us kind of get sin and and deal with it. Because if we don't deal with sin, it will deal with us. And so I'm going to kind of follow the same pattern I've done over the past few weeks in terms of we'll look at the nature of sin. What is its essence? What makes, or sorry, the nature of anger? What's its essence? What's, what's its nature? And then we'll look at the symptoms. How, do, how does it kind of explode or how does it implode in your life and what the costs are? And then we'll look at the nature of how to kill it. How do we kill this sin? Because all of us have it. So let me just first explain the nature of sin. You know, sin was, of course, in the first few pages of the Bible. We see it in Genesis 4, where Cain was angry at his brother. The, I guess the irritability went to anger, the anger went to rage, and the rage then went to murder. And he kills his brother. He's angry at his brother, he's angry at God. But not just as at the beginning of creation, it's also at the beginning of our own creations. I mean, I had children when they were young. You did not need to instruct them how to get angry. They knew how to do it all by themselves and actually at a very young age. I mean, some, it's a throwdown. The others kind of going in a corner are going to punish you by silence, not talking to you, act like you don't live. 
you know, they, they learn that very, very early in life. And, and James knows this will be a plague to the church. And so he wants to deal with the deadly nature of it. But notice what he says here. He says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So he makes this distinction, the anger of man. He's not categorically saying all anger is wrong. He's saying the anger of man is wrong. Uh, the, the other idea, of course, is the anger of man. What, what's the other? Well, the anger of God, the righteous anger of God. And we see this. God is not ashamed of having anger. In fact, when he discloses himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God, in describing himself, tucks the attribute of anger between what you see, mercy and grace and love and faithfulness, but there's anger in there. There's a righteous anger. And this righteous anger of God, I think, is best seen in the life of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of a couple instances where he was angry. Uh, John chapter 2, when he cleans the temple. Remember, the temple there in Jerusalem, temple is a place to worship God, to pray to God, to seek God. And there was this outer court, was called the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was for the nations to come and learn about God, see God worshiped. Pray to God, appeal to God, even come to God. And what the Jewish leadership had done is they had put their animals for sacrifices, their money-changing tables, that is to exchange coinage, and it was there in the court of Gentiles. Well, you can imagine a bazaar, I mean, the smells, the sounds, the commotion. There's no worship going on there. And so Jesus comes in, he sees what's happening, he sees the sinful selfishness of the people, and he begins turning over tables and he begins releasing animals, saying, we need to bring this back into conformity with God had originally intended. He saw the sin, he saw how it concerned the nature of God and his purposes, and then he dealt with it in a very God-honoring way, moving the people out. We see the same thing in Mark chapter 3. When Jesus is there in the synagogue, a man is there with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are waiting for him to heal this man, because it was a Sabbath. In their sinful, false understanding of the gospel, or in their false understanding of the Sabbath, there was to be no healing. And yet Jesus saw this man, this child of Abraham, this image bearer of God, with a withered hand. And so it says in Mark 3, looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, they were more willing to adhere to their understanding of the Sabbath than to see this man freed and healed and he was angry at that so there's a righteous anger here that we see in christ a righteous anger always identifies the sin there's an issue at play it's not my preference it's not my you know my desire it's no there's an actual sin against god it's concerning the purposes of god it concerns the kingdom of god and then that righteous anger is to be administered in a in a godly way now you know this kind of anger this kind of anger just kind of wells up in you. So if you hear about a child, maybe a neighbor, that has been abused over the years, sexually abused, this innocent little child, you know, there's something in you that screams for justice to be meted out. Or even just two weeks ago, there was a, a disabled man with a lot of physical problems walking down the street in Philadelphia. Four youths decided to make sport with him and and begin to beat him up, punch him, kick him, knock him down. Of course, it was all videoed, and the video went viral. There's something in you 
that you just get, you, you have an anger well up in you for justice to be served on behalf of this innocent person. You can even see it with a dog. When someone just gives a dog a, a beatdown for being a dog because he, the dog did something the owner didn't want, you're like, it's way over the top. You just know it intuitively that this is wrong and justice ought to be meted out. We, we know that feeling. And that's what we're talking about here, that righteous anger that we should have. The plight of the people in North Korea, what ISIS does, there's a certain sense of justice and righteous anger there. But that's not what James is going after. James is going after the anger of man. Now that's a different animal, because that doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. That doesn't bring about a justice that's honoring God. Now, I think we're often confused over this nature of the anger of man. You know, we think the anger of man is something when we get angry. You know, something goes sideways. We have uncomfortable situations or we have unwanted situations or someone knocks over a glass of milk or, or someone cuts in front of you on the road or someone speaks about you in a negative way. And we think, well, that justifies my anger. Well, that's not what James says. You know, most of us think that anger occurs outside of us the reality is that anger is, starts within us, right? James, just a couple chapters later, said, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the desires that battle within you? So the conflict we have actually ensues from our own, our own struggle over what we want. He says, the desires that battle within you. In other words, the things that we love most, the things that we want most, those things that we desire, those things that we think will make us happy, when they're challenged or when they're thwarted, then that's when the anger begins to come up. When we, we want something so bad. Now, many of these things can be good. I, I want a good marriage. And let's say my marriage has hit a tough patch. Well, I begin to get angry because my marriage isn't as good as someone else's. Or I, I want successful children. I, I really love, I, I want successful children, but my children are rebellious and, and they're pushing back against me and that gets my anger up. Or, or it can be any number of things. I want health or security. But the reason that anger comes from within is that we want something, we love something, we think we need something, and when it's thwarted, we get angry. Now, this is what Augustine, the church father of the fourth century, said was a disordered love. It, I love something so much I think I need it so badly, when I don't get it, I get angry. So let me give a couple examples. One would be, you know, you would see a disordered love if my house is on fire and I run into the house and I take the painting that's unique and expensive and I run out of the house without saving my child that's in there. That's a kind of an obvious thing. What are you doing? Why do you love a painting more than the child? It would be a disordered love. It would be no different than this if you're a mother and you really need your child to love you. And so you refuse to administer any sort of discipline because you don't want to jeopardize her love for you. That's a disordered love. You're loving the child more than you're loving the responsibility you have to God. It's when we take good things and we make them ultimate things, and then we get angry. And disordered loves bring disordered anger. It brings a disordered anger, a disproportionate anger. So, for example... We get mad at the wrong person in the wrong way at the wrong time. It can be this way, that you are absolutely ticked off because you're in a traffic jam and you're late and you don't ever seem to get angry over the suffering of people in Raqqa, Syria. 
it never even enters your mind. Or you're just, you're just absolutely irritated and angry that somebody would snub you at the office, and yet you, never, you haven't gotten upset at all the fact that there is a homeless crisis in Raleigh. Or there's, there's sex trafficking, doesn't even enter your mind, but you just can't believe you didn't get invited to that party. There's this absolute disproportionate and disordered love. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, there's nothing wrong with getting angry to a degree if somebody slights your reputation. But why are you 10 times, 100 times more angry about it than some horrible injustice being done to people in another part of the world? Because if what you're really looking to for your significance and security is people's approval, or a good reputation, or a status, or something like that, then when anything gets between you and the thing you have to have, you become implacably angry. You have to have it. You're over the top. You cannot shrug it off. So that's the nature of an unrighteous anger, an anger of man. So last time you were angry, what were you angry over? Were you, were you angry over being snubbed by somebody? Were you angry over someone said something in a harsh way to you? Were you angry over being criticized or someone gossiped of you? What were you angry over? Somebody didn't treat you well? And, and when was the last time you were angry over God's honor being questioned? When were you angry over the other injustices of abuse of children, abuse of women? When were you angry over them? We tend to find that most of our anger resides in how we're being treated how we're being cared for, what's being said about us. So that's the nature of anger. Now, now let's just see how it kind of, the symptoms, if you will, how does it manifest in our life? How do we identify it? And then what are some of the costs? So I'm kind of in the second bucket now. Um, well, we all get angry. I said that. Even the surfer type gets angry. He just gets angry in a different way. Uh, let me give you two extremes, and we'll find ourselves probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, some of you get angry probably in more of the ice blue type of anger. You know, that's more of the clam up, not the blow up. The ice blue is kind of the simmering and the smoldering and the baking on things. The person who has an ice blue anger usually has a fairly strong willpower they never look like they're angry. They keep it, you know, you just tighten the bolts on the pressure cooker a little bit more. You know, they simmer, they smolder, but you know what? They keep a record of the facial expressions and the words used, and they know the intonation of what was said, and they have it all marked down. They got a record of every grievance against them. And their words tend to be very calculated, very cutting, very critical. That's the icy blue type. Now, the white hot, that's more of the, the old faithful, you know, the old geyser, the explosive, the volcanic, you know, the, the, the kind where the face gets red and maybe some foam gets around the lips and the feet are stomping. This is when words are more like hand grenades. You know, hand grenades are very effective, but they're not real precise. They send shrapnel everywhere. And so their words tend to wound a lot of people, even those often unintended. This is kind of a, a, an explosive type of anger. So where would you be? Like, how does, how does anger manifest itself in your life? Now, most of you are probably thinking, well, I'm not really icy blue, but I'm not really, you know, you're probably somewhere in the middle of that continuum, maybe to one side or the other. But here's the point. However it manifests in your life, 
The issue is that it's going to cost you big. It, 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 the icy blue type can do the same damage that the white hot can do. And, and the costs are significant. And I just want to detail out a few of the costs that you and I will pay if we let this monster live with us. Uh, the first cost is natural. It's just your physical health. I mean, doctors will tell you that anger, sustained anger, is worse than being overweight or being stressed or facing anxiety. That there's decreased blood flow during periods of anger. In fact, the chances of heart attacks skyrocket uh, within two hours of an explosion. A and this kind of anger is, some people say that anger is worse than lust. Because at least with lust, I know what I'm looking at, I know I'm ruining my sexuality. That's pretty clear. But anger is a silent killer because everybody's convinced they don't have an anger problem. And so it just kind of works in your life like a sinkhole works. You know, you see the, the news come on and there's some house in Florida and everything was fine, they're playing ball, and the next day there's a house in a hole and a car and the neighbor's car is in the hole. And, and those sinkholes work just as underground water begins to soften up and, and make soluble the softer stones like limestone. And when that limestone begins to kind of turn into water, then, of course, the whole ground just drops and it takes everything with it. That's what, that's what anger does to you. It will ruin your health. But not just ruining your health. It, it ruin, it, it's expensive. There's great costs. Do you realize that it costs businesses $4.5 billion a year in lost revenue and other HR costs associated with dealing with anger in the workplace? that 25,000 murders occur each year over, over anger. In fact, 1,000 of those is in the workplace. This is a terrible stat. That 40% of all women who are murdered are murdered from their husband or their boyfriend over anger. 40%. I mean, the cost in terms of relational pain, familial pain, is profound. Anger, anger will exact its toll out of us. So it's not just physical, it's not just financial, but it is relational. I, I mean, there is no breakup of marriage, there's no fracturing of family, there is no splitting of church that, apart, that occurs without some degree of anger being involved. And remember what anger does is anger wants to exaggerate my innocence and it wants to compound your foolishness or your misdeeds or your the issues, the offenses that you've given. If you've been raised in a home where there has been explosive anger, you see it in the kids. Paul even warns about that. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. You know, because a father can raise his voice with such that, that, that the home begins to feel the weight of this anger. Kids get quiet. They separate. They get scared. Or in terms of our marriages. You know, think about how Peter warned us in the third chapter that the harshness of a man will crush the spiritual vitality between a man and a woman. Prayers will be hindered, he says. So th there's, this, there's this dynamic that anger in a marriage begins to erode the very one flesh that we're called to pursue. Why? Because it's scary to be with a person who's always got a bag of anger they're carrying with them. But it's not just a relational issue. It also corrodes your own soul. There is an effect on you long term. Your soul will begin to shrivel up. And you'll be the one that is consumed. Frederick Buechner, a 
contemporary writer slash theologian writes this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is, is you. So anger will have its day if you allow it. And this brings us to the last cost. So whether you're explosive or whether you're icy blue, it, it, will, it will open you up to darkness, to, to satanic attack. Paul says very clearly in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he says, and don't give the devil a foothold. Well, the reason that they have such close proximity is because the one does the other that not resolving your anger gives the devil a foothold. And that word for foothold can actually be a metaphor for giving him an opportunity. It's allowing Satan to establish a beachhead, to, to bring attack to your life. And you know how this is. If you go to bed and you have not reconciled anger with your spouse, for example, the next morning you tend to be, you know, you don't touch feet in the bed and all that sort of stuff. You know, you want to make sure... You know, there's no movement towards reconciliation. And you get up the next morning and you're, you're more mad. And oftentimes you feel more, more righteous over your anger and what the other did. And it just becomes a little bit harder. It's firmed up a little bit more. But not only that, it begins to erode your ability to be assured that you're in a right relationship with God. You know, John, who was, no, who was a guy, the Apostle John, had an anger issue, right? He was called one of the sons of thunder. And he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murder has eternal life abiding in him. So here's the cost. The cost is ultimate in terms of if you don't deal with anger, it will evidence that you don't know the saving and reconciling power of God. And if you don't deal with anger and you're not reconciled with God, then you do not have a part in eternal life. I mean, that, that's as hard as it is. He said, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, and murders don't have a part of the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get angry, but, but as we're going to see, anger for the child of God is followed with repentance and faith. But if you just stay locked in your anger, and, and, and there have been people uh, that I have seen uh, go to the end wanting to still hold on to their rightness over some past grievance. It's a terrible thing to watch. Terrible thing to see someone hanging on to rightness, even as they go towards the day. So we don't want that for us. We want to see that the costs are great. So we see anger. We see there's a righteous anger. And, and there is always associated with that that God's word has been compromised. God's concerns are being thwarted. And, and we want to reconcile it in a godly way. There's unrighteous anger, which is the bulk of what we have. And that unrighteous anger it can be explosive, it can be icy blue, it can be in between, it doesn't matter. It's going to have great costs on you. So what do we do with this? How are we going to deal with this? Well, this is how we kill it. So I'm on the third step here. How do we kill this kind of anger? Well, the first thing I would say to you is just admit that you're angry. Admit that you have an issue with anger. Now, if you're sitting here and you've been thinking through the sermon, so-and-so needs to hear this. 
It's you that needs to hear it. It's me that needs to hear it. This isn't for Joe or Pete or Sue. Or, this is for you. We have to admit we have a problem with angry. We get angry. So many times I'll hear people soft pedal it with words like, you know what, I just, uh, I got to shoot straight. I got to, listen, somebody's got to tell it the way it is. And I'm like, well, why does it have to be you? You know, who gave you that right? But we soft pedal it. Hey, I just got to clear my chest. And that's their excuse, so that's their soft pedaling of anger. Others want to just excuse themselves, say, oh, I just blew my top. Well, I just lost my temper. I lost my cool. There's a lot more going on than that. And many within the Christian community want to just deny that they're angry. We just don't think we're angry. We're like addicts. We just can't admit it. And the reason that we struggle admitting that we're angry is because we think we're so right. We use things like righteous indignation. We think we're bringing justice. Do you ever, do you ever question yourself? I mean, I, I can testify, I always think I'm right. And so if I'm right, it's not anger. I'm reconciling a conflict. Man, one author wrote, justice is the proclaimed motive for every manifestation of wrath. We just don't think we have an attitude or an anger problem. So, so let's start with just admitting the fact, yeah, I do get angry. I've been angry before and then forgot why I was angry. And that's how stupid it is. But we need to admit it. Secondly, we need to query it or we need to question it. You know, that's picking back up with James where he says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. He's giving us tools to slow the anger train down. Be quick to listen. Of course that makes sense. You want to listen to the other person. You want to hear what they're saying to make sure that you're not arguing about two different things, which, which has been done before. You want to be slow to speak. You don't want to defend. You don't want to quickly just excuse yourself for the anger. You don't want to all of a sudden marshal a reason why you're the way you are. So you want to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Why? So you can be slow to anger. And to be slow to anger means that it gives you the time to ask, why am I angry? Why am I angry right now? You know, that's what God asked Cain after Cain murdered Abel. Why are you angry? He asked Job this the same thing. When Job was sitting under the plant, he was receiving the nice shade from the plant, and the plant dies, and now jo Jonah is mad. He's mad because the plant died. He's not worried about the 100,000 people in Nineveh that are about to be crushed. And, and God says, why are you angry? Why are you angry about the plant? Ask yourself. In other words, make sure that there's an actual sin in play and it's not just some personal preference that wasn't taken into consideration that you had. You know, is, is there an actual sin involved? And, and are God's concerns or are they just my concerns? Am I angry over my preferences and concerns? Or is some purpose of God being thwarted? And then, and then if I do exercise anger, will I exercise it in a godly way with grace and truth and kindness and humility? Or am I going to come in like the third Calvary? And I'm going to come in with all kinds of self-righteous indignation. So query, ask yourself. You know, Ben Franklin said, anger always has its reasons. They're just seldom good. Seldom are they good. Ask, why am I angry? If you're in a discipleship relationship, Ask a brother, ask a sister. You know, I would say that really about, about all of us here. You know, I would ask you to, to ask your spouse or a good friend, or ask, if you dare, ask your child, how do you see me when I get angry? What does my anger do to you? 
when I blow my top, how does that make you feel? Ask your kids that. Ask your friend. I mean, if you listen, some of the best advice I've ever received have come from people that probably were oftentimes some of my harshest critics. So, so you listen to that. Now, I always ask you these questions, and sometimes I wonder, will you do that? Will you really ask some of those questions? I want to encourage you to, because I'll tell you, we've already seen it. If, if you don't deal with it, it, it'll have you. It'll have you. So query it. Ask the questions. Am I, why am I angry? I do that with Carol. Sometimes I say, why am I angry right now? And, and generally, it's driven by some, she hasn't appreciated me to the, think that, to the degree that I think I should be appreciated. Or, you know, I'd walk in the, the house and the kids were burning it down and fighting and and, and I, I'm now going from zero to ten. I'm now angry. And I'm, why am I angry at them? Am I angry because I want them to walk in a godly way with one another? Or am I angry because they're taking my peace and they're ruining the convenience or whatever I want in life at that time? And I tell you, nine out of, nine, out of nine times, frankly, it's always somehow me. So ask it. And then when you, when you discern why you're angry, repent of it. Repent of it. Can, it's a disordered love. It's idolatry. I'm self-centered. Just confess it to God and confess it to the people with whom you're angry. Just don't, you know, a lot of secular literature at this point will instruct you, well, you need to just stop and breathe and count to 10. Listen, when I'm really ticked off, I can really count to 10 fast. Or go to a timeout chair. I've put myself in a timeout chair before. It does not work. I mean, I mean some of those things, I, I appreciate what they're driving at, but it, it demands repentance. And when I repent uh, to, to Carol or to the kids or to some of you, I don't want to just say, hey, I'm sorry, blew my top. No, I want to say, you know what, I'm sorry that I made such a idol out of you respecting me. And when you didn't respect me, I got angry at you. Now, when I do that for Carol, she knows I've taken my own soul to task. She knows that I am repenting. I looked down, I saw why I was angry, I admitted it, and I repented to her. And then her forgiveness is, it's a transaction that's completed. I mean, it's just, I've admit, this is what I've done. It wasn't, well, work was really tough, or the traffic was really bad. That's all, that's all excuse making. So admit it, then ask yourself, why am I angry? And then, and then repent. And then, f- and then um, what are you up to? Four. Fourth, I would say forgive it. Now, this is where the gospel comes in. And if you're a Christian here, the gospel has saved us from darkness and brought us to the kingdom of light. But the gospel also keeps saving us. And we need the gospel. We need the gospel for anger. How does the gospel bring help to us? Well, what the gospel reminds us, the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us not just that God has been unfathomably merciful to us. It does do that. And it, it, it just says to you, you're far more loved than you could ever have imagined. But the cross also reminds us that our sins are far more wicked and so much uglier than you could ever imagine. And God was angry at those sins. And Jesus is angry at those sins. And, and, and Jesus is born the wrath of God over our sins. So God has put our sins upon Christ and then he's brought the full righteous wrath of God on our sin, of our sins upon Christ. 
So he has borne the punishment for us for our sins. How does this help? Well, when you sin against me, I'm reminded of the sins that I sinned against him and the sins that he paid for and the sins that I've been forgiven for. And so it draws me to enjoy again the forgiveness that I have through the gospel. And so when you then look at their sins against you in light of your sins against God, all of a sudden now it just seems, forgiveness seems a lot easier. Forgiveness seems a lot more gracious. You know the parable in Matthew 18 about the servant who's forgiven the unfathomable debt that he could never pay, and and, and the king forgives him because he's merciful. And then that servant goes out to the other servant and says, give me my money of which was nothing. The the ungrateful nature, he didn't understand. If we understand our forgiveness, then we're apt to give it. So the gospel helps us, helps us. In fact, one author said it this way, most of our anger towards others is rooted in our inability to be profoundly amazed at Christ's love for us in our sin. If you're struggling with bitterness, then it may be that the Lord is letting the very sin of your bitterness that's flowing from your anger to be how you come to see him. The more profoundly amazed you are over the cross of Christ for your sins, the more you'll find pleasure to forego grievances and grudges. The solution is not to fix the other person, but first to gain a heart that is overflowing, thankful for grace for Christ that spills over with grace towards others. You can't walk in forgiveness apart from the gospel. You, you just can't do it. But, but, but immersing yourself in all of my sins caused God to be very angry, and he forgave me. And this is why Paul brings about ridding anger with forgiveness. He says in Ephesians, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So as God in Christ has forgiven you, gives you the ability to put away anger. Okay, the fifth and the last idea. So you admit it. You query it or question it, you uh, repent of it, and then you, uh, you forgive it through the power of the gospel. And then last, you forsake it. You forsake it and trust God. Remember last week we looked at Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is really a psalm about injustice. Remember how he said, be not envious of the wicked? In other words, it's a song about injustice. And, and what the psalmist does is he says, trust in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and then delight yourself in the Lord. And then in the eighth verse, he says, forsake wrath and turn away from anger. You can only forsake wrath when you have God to trust in. Why? Because everything in you screams for justice. When you are offended, when somebody does something that you perceive against you, you immediately want some sort of justice. And you want to bring it. That's what anger is. Anger is our attempt to control a situation to somehow bring about justice as we see fit problem is we really can't see what justice is what justice is when we're in the middle of it and so what the psalmist is saying and what what i think james is saying here is that is that no you you trust god you you take the sins of others that you feel you want to return the favor and you have to trust commit your way to god now particularly for those of you in situations where anger is a recurring thing you're living with somebody that is just constantly maybe at your heels or, or they're just constantly irritating or they're causing anger to be just a, just a party to your relationship. 
you have to keep forsaking it. You have to keep, as, as uh, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have to keep entrusting yourself to God who judges justly. That's the only way we can continue to deal with anger, going to the cross and then entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, he says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Entrust yourselves to God. So here's what we've covered today. It's a big topic because it affects all of you. There's righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Learn to distinguish the two. How are they different? And then secondly, look at how you express your anger. Is it explosive? Is it icy cold? And consider the costs that you've incurred. What costs have you incurred? How many friendships have you lost? How many friendships have you put on edge because of some explosive or frustrating or, or mean thing that you've done back? So consider how it is. Again, invite your spouse or a good friend to speak to you about this. And then last, we have to deal with it. We have to put a fork in this thing and kill it. And so we have to admit it, and then we have to query it. Why am I angry? We have to repent of it. And then we have to, of course, forgive it, and then we have to forsake it by trusting God. So let's take a minute now and just in silence, perhaps you can, you can consider the nature of your anger and... Um, yeah, and then ask for grace, or perhaps God's given you some real grace in this, and you have moved forward in terms of being able to forgive. And so I would encourage you to just take a minute now and speak with, speak with God about that.